Can you hear me okay? Thank you. We'll wait another minute for people to arrive. <clears throat> And Dina, just FYI, I never look at the chats, so better to speak up when you need to. I was going to. Okay. As usual, it's good to see you all. I appreciate when people from the same family are here at different places. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's begin. Uh, I'm Eugene Cash. Welcome, everybody. This is the Sunday evening meeting of San Francisco Insight. We'll have a meditation and then a talk and then a time for to have some discussion about the talk. So please take your meditative posture, whatever that is, whether it's on a bench or a cushion or a chair. <clears throat> And please begin by becoming aware of your body sitting here. Partly that means simply feeling your body or sensing your body. becoming aware of the liveness that's sitting here that we call our body. And as you start to feel or sense or be aware of your body, be aware of the posture the form that your body is taking the shape. And it's very helpful, whether on a chair or cushion or bench, to be sitting as much as possible upright on your sits bones so that there is an uprightness that begins at the base of the spine and goes all the way through the back of the neck.
And I see, I know a number of people don't like to turn their video on, but it's really nice if we can see you. And you don't have to turn it on, but it's very, um, feels more inclusive if we can see you and let's see who's in the room. And as you become mindful of your body sitting here, be aware of whatever experiences of body support your being centered here in the body as we develop uh, embodied awareness. And as you feel the places of contact with the chair or the cushion or the bench or the couch, wherever you are. And of course, the contact of the skin with the air. Be aware of it, be, feel it. Be sensitive to what's happening here in this moment, in the lived moment. And of course, it's very fundamental to be aware that, of the fact that the body is breathing. And you can be aware of your life's breath, whether it's at the nostrils or it's the feeling at the, in the chest or the rising and falling of the belly, or you're just aware of the whole body as it breathes. Stay close to your life's breath right now. And it doesn't mean there won't be other things happening, other feelings, thoughts, sounds, other experiences even of the body, but breathe with them right now. And as you begin to settle, center, ground here in the present moment experience of your body, your aliveness, your breathing, you can also be aware of the silence in which everything is occurring 
the space or silence in which the body, the sensations, the sounds, the smells, the images, the feelings, the thoughts, all arise in this spacious, relaxed, open awareness. And of course, what will be included, what's part of the meditative process, is our reaction to any of the experiences we're having now, the liking or not liking, or the wanting or not wanting, or the appreciating or not appreciating, whatever is here right now for you as you're mindful whether you're mindful of the body or the body and the breathing, or you're mindful of thought, or you're mindful of sound, or you're mindful of feelings. There's often uh, sometimes gross, sometimes very simple, subtle reaction to the feeling tone of each moment, the Vedna of it being pleasant or unpleasant or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And our practice is to simply open, allow, be aware of, relax with the life that is displaying itself here, right where you sit, moment, by moment, by moment. Staying very intimate with this experience, this moment. And then this experience and this moment. being mindful of our life right now, right here. Nowhere else to go, nothing else to do, 
except be present moment by moment by moment.
will spend the last few minutes of this meditation offering our loving kindness in a very simple way, breathing in and out from the heart center if you wish to join us and offering your care, your love, your warmth, your good wishes as part of our practice tonight for the people who died in the attack on 9-11 21 years ago and for their relatives, friends, loved ones who miss them to this day. Feeling our care, our compassion, our kindness and let it radiate to the people who died and to the people who grieved them. And if it helps, you can use the phrases that are associated. May you be well, may you be safe wherever you are. May you be at ease. May you be free. I wish this for you. Letting the heart radiate in including all the people we may have known or don't know who suffered in that violence of 9-11. And you can just breathe in and out of the heart center and let the heart radiate its natural care, kindness, love. And then let's now bring that love, that care, that heartfulness into the current world, offering it for the people of Ukraine who are at war now, and for the people of Russia who are at war now, offering our kindness and care and good wish and hope, may they be at peace, may their lives be safe, May they be free from the suffering of war. May their hearts open and may they be free. Just breathing in and out the love, the care, the kindness, the compassion from the heart center. And we can expand the field of the love, the boundless nature of loving kindness to include the people at war in Yemen and the people who are at war in the Congo or the people who are still fighting in Afghanistan or the people who are struggling, fighting in Ethiopia 
or any of the other conflicts around the world where people are hurting each other with violence because of fear, because of anger. Wishing the peoples, the humans in this world, whether it's Ethiopia or Palestine, Israel or Iraq, wherever it might be that people are still fighting, fearing, attacking, scaring, hurting one another. Sending our good wishes, let them saturate this world, the world of fear and violence and hatred, anger. May all beings be safe. May all beings be happy. May all beings be free from the suffering of war and violence and hatred. May all beings be free. Thank you, Eugene. Um, greetings, Sangha. My name is Nina Gold, and I'm one of your board members. And I'm curious first if there's someone from the Sangha who might be willing to say maybe a few words, a minute or less about what Donna is, what it means to you, how you've practiced with it or struggled with it. Any takers? Okay, so I will uh, say a few words about Donna. <laughs> Generosity. Um, yeah, it's interesting to notice how scary it can be to speak and it can be actually an act of Donna just to speak in, in, in the group here if it's um, asking questions from Eugene at the end and just bringing your voice into the room. Um, so Donna is also uh, how we sustain ourselves as a Sangha and this practice of generosity and giving has um, been sustaining the teaching since the time of the Buddha. So for over 2,500 years. So in a moment, I'll put the link in the chat, how you can offer uh, your generosity through financial offerings, and then, of course, also offering through volunteering. There's a link on the website. And offering through your presence and showing up, like Eugene even said, turning on your camera, which 
sometimes there's reasons we don't want to, but all these ways that we show up for each other is also practicing <laughs> generosity. Okay, and then I have a couple announcements, um, some important upcoming events. Sorry about Daisy, can you hear the barking? Shall I continue with the <laughs> Daisy's not practicing Donna? Yeah, right? yeah. Da Daisy's part of the Sangha who's speaking up right now. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so on October 29th, we have an in-person event, a Sangha celebration in Golden Gate Park. It'll be a picnic of sorts, and uh, the location um, will be. The exact location is TBD, but uh, save the date for that. And then October 30th, we have a really special event. It is our 30 year anniversary celebration. SFI is 30 years old. And uh, that will be a virtual event, just like we're doing now on a Sunday night. Um, I'll show a bit of a video of um, SFI, the um, service and trip that SFI did to, some folks did to South Africa. Um, and we'll have some special guests, Jack Kornfield, um, Aya Nandabodi, Aya Santachita, Tanisara, and Frank Ostaseski. And then maybe my husband will go take care of Daisy. Um, we have a day long November 5th called Befriending Death with Eileen Spillane and Don Neal. And I think I'm gonna sign off now, it's getting loud here. Thank you, Daisy and Nina. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I'd like to talk about 9-11 and I've been reflecting on it and really a little bit steeped in it in some way for the last few days, knowing that it was coming up and that it was um, uh, a very um, pivotal moment for many of us and maybe for all of us. I'm curious, is anybody, is anybody, um, anybody not remember 9-11, right? Anybody not aware of that? And does, that, does everybody remember where they were when 9-11 happened? Okay. Okay, I'm just wanted to see. I mean, you know, mostly this group is old enough, so I would think everybody's here. But if there were some people in their early 20s that they may not have been aware of it when it happened or... It may have been off their radar if there were three or seven or even, but I don't think we have that many young people in our group anymore. Um, when we were younger, we had more young people. Um, so, um, so when you remember it, um, what do you remember? Is this a little reflection for you? What do you remember? What's the first memory that comes? Or or, um, or what did it mean when it happened for you? And also, um, what does it mean now? 
that 9-11 happened because it's a different meaning, at least for me, than it was then. And, you know, and where were you and, and how did it impact you? How did you respond in the moment or right after? And, um, and what did you understand when it happened? <clears throat> and how do you understand it in terms of practice or the Dharma at this point? And it, it's for me to be, I've been reflecting on it. I've been reading about it. I've been uh, um, looking at old, old articles about it, like right after it happened and writings about 9-11. And it's very sobering for me, really. It's sobering. And, and, and so I looked up and I felt like, oh yeah, sober. That's the, that's the consciousness that comes for me with this. Um, and, and so I looked up the word sober, which it said to make or become serious, sensible, solemn, also to be thoughtful, earnest, steady, level-headed, calm down. And there's something about reflecting about dukkha in general, especially when we know it from, in, from the inside, which is how I feel a little bit I know 9-11, because it was so immediate when it happened, um, that it's, it's sobering. And it, it does bring a certain kind of uh, level-headedness or down-to-earthness that I think is an important part of Dharma practice. And I was home when 9-11 when happened and I got a call from our friend Frank Ostaseski, who Nina announced will be at the celebration. And Frank Franco called me and he said, turn on the TV, we're being attacked. Like that's the message I got. And, and, uh, and I turned it on and got the idea of who was doing it. And, and it, and, you know, cause they were saying terrorist attack and, and, um, and it made sense, right? Like I understood the causes and conditions that brought it forth. It wasn't like, that it wasn't like, oh no, this shouldn't, you know, this shouldn't be happening, even though it shouldn't be happening. It made sense that it was happening in, in terms of all the causes and conditions of who we are as a country, the United States, and what we've done in the world and how people relate to us, because we're a very, very powerful country and have been for a long time now. And it doesn't mean we'll always be a powerful country or it'll always be the same. But for quite a while, we've been maybe the most powerful country in the world. And I think of when I as I'm saying it, I'm thinking of how powerful uh, uh, England was for so many years. Like they kind of ruled the world for years and had, you know, colonial empire in so many countries right and and just took over countries like in india the most populated country in the world they and but they're not that anymore they're not a powerful country in that way now and um and and so things change but 911 was a big deal because 
um, it, we, hadn't, we hadn't been attacked on our soil for almost, I'm trying to get it right, 200 years, right? The last time we were really attacked on our soil was in 1812 when the British attacked us, right? On our soil, I mean, fired onto our soil. Well, Gene, there, there was Pearl Harbor too. Uh, uh, yeah, please don't jump in because I'm happy to, I already know about Pearl Harbor, but Pearl Harbor was an American uh, colony and that wasn't the actual country. The Pearl, you know, I just, I read about, read about Hawaii, uh, uh, Clint, if you want to talk more about it sometime, because um, that was stolen from the Hawaiian people and it was done by the American government. And it's so I don't, I don't, and, and what was attacked at Pearl Harbor was not the Hawaii, Hawaii or the Hawaiian people. It was the American uh, arms and Navy. That's what was attacked. I'm talking about where we were attacked on our soil the last time, you know, from 1812 until um, 2001. And, and 2001 shocked us. For most of us, maybe not everybody, but it shocked us because we we hadn't been attacked and we didn't even think we could be attacked, or at least I didn't. I, like it didn't even come into my mind or heart, and it and it changed the world like that. It just changed the world immediately. The world became so much smaller. It became one world, and everything is was seemed all of a sudden much closer and much more accessible. And that's continued since then, especially with the, uh, with the immediacy of how much we know about the whole world uh, in any moment. We can know what's happening almost anywhere. You know, for in the old days, it would take, you know, days or weeks or months for information to go around the world to understand what was happening somewhere else. But it changed our world also because it shifted enemies for us. The enemies of the United States really shifted from communist to, uh, to the Muslim people and Islamophobia began, right? And because when we're scared, this is true not just of people in the United States, but almost everywhere, when we're scared of somebody, we other them. We make the enemy the other. We make them the wrong people or the people we need to attack in order for us to be safe. And it doesn't matter whether it's war or whether it's coronavirus, the attacking of Asian Americans um, was out of fear and totally um, deluded and, and insane, but it didn't matter because people were responding from their fear and the 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 um, the momentum which I've been talking about in the meditation practice um, um, of what we do continues even Afghanistan right like 2001 that was really what initiated the Afghanistan war which we fought for 20 years and now we're out of Afghanistan and the violence still continues right and so 9-11 instilled a lot of fear in us and in the world and so it's 
the question for us individually is how do we practice our fear with fear, with our own vulnerability, right? And how do we deal with it collectively, the collective anxiety that really arose in America, just like boom, right? That was, everybody was afraid. Everybody was like, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna deal with this? Where, who are we gonna get? Who are we gonna get? Who is it? And, and how quickly can we get them? Right. And whether it, it and that kind of collective anxiety is not just about war, it's also about climate change. Right. I mean, there's a collective anxiety about that that is not just limited to the United States, but the whole world. Or the anxiety about the fascistic nature of so many politicians these days who just want to control reality because they can't control it. And so there's an insecurity that comes naturally and came from the terrorist attack and the media frenzy that followed it because it touched our deepest fears. And of course, you all know this, but I'm going to just say it again. The truth is that life is insecure. It always has been. It always will be. And it, it's independent of what happened at the World Trade Center, or it's independent of the COVID you know, pandemic, or it's independent of any of the particulars. Life is insecure. And when we're afraid, we want to remember to practice, to, you know, remind yourself to sit or to breathe or to touch the place in you uh, that is timeless or expanded or compassionate and can hold all of what's happening just in this moment. Because that's all we have to do is hold it right for a moment. And then the next moment. And in Buddhism, of course, we, we look at the causes and conditions to try to understand them so we don't just react. We don't just act heedlessly as the word. Heedless is actually another way of saying mindlessly, you know, or, you know, or, or just go after somebody for some reason because we get afraid, right? Can you be aware before you attack somebody, even just verbally, or even in your car when you give them the feeling, finger, right? Can you just wait and be aware of the, what's here when you want to attack someone, aware of your motivation, aware of your intention? Hmm. I asked, I've been asking a few people about where were they at when 9-11 happened and, you know, because I was home and turned on the TV and watched the second building, you know, the, the videos of the planes and, you know, and it was horrendous. And I, I talked to Mark Coleman today, our friend who will also be at the celebration Um and he, I said, where were you? He said he was at Viacitos, which is a retreat center in New Mexico. And he was doing a retreat for activists. And so he's doing a retreat for activists, a lot of whom were New York City activists. 
and all they had was a transistor radio. And I, I imagine all of you remember transistor radios. Maybe some of you don't. It was before the internet. There were transistor radios, and and they could would barely get reception, and people were cut off from their families and from their loved ones, and they were shocked. And he said, people were really shocked. He said the one thing, and he said he was shocked, but he wasn't as shocked as the Americans. Because he said, you know, he grew up in England. And he said all the countries in Europe had been bombed. That was not just something you, you didn't consider or you didn't know. And of course, even, even though he wasn't alive during World War II, he could still see the destruction from World War II. And he said, and, you know, in other European countries, and he said what they did on the retreat is they did a lot of Mecca for everybody, for, for the people in New York and the people in the World Trade Center and for the people in the plains, right? They did Mecca for everyone because Buddhism is asking us to see the bigger picture, to, to have a shift in perspective, to see what's needed, what's right what's appropriate, what's kind, right? And I saw an article that came after the 9-11 happened. It was in a Buddhist magazine. It was called the Terror Koan. For those of you who don't know, a koan is a short um, parable in Buddhism that uh, describes or points to the indescribable. Right. And you and you you meditate on the koan and it opens your heart and mind. And so the terror koan was a, they'd interviewed a bunch of different Buddhist teachers about how they responded to 9-11. And so I'll read you a few. One is my friend, colleague, um, Joseph Goldstein. He said, I don't feel like I have any transcendental understanding, only my own fumbling through it. Right. He said, but it seems to me we must that we must respond. That seems to me we must respond that they present a real danger to people. He's talking about terrorists. And so some active protection is totally appropriate. How to balance that without creating more violence? That's the real koan. How to protect people and not create more violence. That's the real koan. And then, like every teacher interviewed in the article, John uh, Dedolori, who was a Zen teacher, emphasized the need to look for alternatives to violence. And he talked about Jesse Jackson's pro proposed mediation, mediation mission. This is from Jesse Jackson, Jackson, the American politician and civil rights leader who said he wanted to bomb Afghanistan with food and long-term methods of getting to the root of suffering. And when, uh, and, and really he wanted to, and Jesse Jackson was pointing at the causes and conditions that brought about some of the hatred and the fear and the anger. And when asked about whether the country should ask against the terrorist, uh, John Dido Lori said, uh, he said he was unequivocal, most certainly, but the degree of response and motivation will count very, very highly in what kind of karma we're gonna create. 
And so one way to think about how to practice with this is to really keep reflecting on how do you practice when you're scared or anxious or angry, right? What's, what ha what's the bigger picture in the moment when you're experiencing the fear or the anger or the anxiety or the, or the reactiveness or the hatred, whatever it might be? Because we're not, none of that is outside the bound, bounds of what can arise for any of us. And so to keep seeing what's happening in body, what's happening in the mind, what's happening with our perspective. And I've mentioned this a few times, but I have, I have an interesting fear koan that happens for me. And my fear koan happens in the middle of the night. I'll wake up and all of a sudden I'll have some fear and it's very primitive and it's very irrational at times but it doesn't matter. I'm feeling it, I'm believing it energetically. I feel it, even, even if I know it's not logical, that doesn't stop the fear from being here. And so I practice in the middle of the night with fear. And I do my best to keep being very kind to Eugene because Eugene's afraid. And, and even that, just that, that, backing off and being aware of myself as being afraid starts to bring some balance or some equanimity. And, and, um, and of course, I'm, I'm always so grateful that the first thing I do in the morning is I get up and sit and I watch because the fear will often still be here in the morning. It's like, you know, it's strong. If it woke me up in the middle of the night, it's not just gone in the morning. I'm still having those thoughts, ideas. And I just watch myself land. And it's like so, I'm so um, grateful for practice because it's like, oh, I'm here. Even though the fear is here, I'm here. And then I can deal with it. And then it, and then I quickly start to make sense of what do I need to do? What's right action? What's appropriate? What makes sense? What's kind? Hmm. And so partly what I'm describing is a little bit of how to respond uh, to the basis of what created 9-11, which is fear, anger, hatred, um, and, and the power balances between people and countries, right? And so really, um, uh, it's important to keep finding our own balance, our own equanimity in the moment, and also the importance of Sangha, of people who also care about being here and aware and awake and kind and appropriate, and to living in the real moment, in real life, and meeting it with our hearts meeting it with our hearts fully. Martin Buber said, all real living is meeting. All real living is meeting, meeting this moment, meeting ourselves, meeting our loved one, meeting our friends, meeting our, our community, meeting our, our world the way it is. And so our task is to really begin to make our heart a zone of peace if we want peace in the world. 
right? Not just being entangled in the embattled bitterness or cynicism that exists uh, externally. We need to heal those qualities first within ourselves, And then if we can face our suffering, our fear, and transform them, we can start to respond like that to the world. And as the Buddha said, it's really seeing clearly, the Buddha didn't say this, I'm saying it, it's really about seeing clearly. Because when we see clearly, we can find our ground. And the Buddha did say, he said in battle, the winners and losers both lose. And that's such a, that's such simple, deep, profound dharma that's hard for us really to get. And religion it was so much a part of what happened in 9-11 in, uh, that I thought I would read a little bit about, tell you a little bit about it. First of all, I saw the, oh, this is not what I want. Huh. Uh, let's see if that's what I want. Mm. Let's see if I can find, there was a document. Oh, here it is, here's the document. This, the people who were the terrorists, right? Who, um, um, who attacked 9-11, they, they had so many prayers that they were saying, they were so religious that it just shocked me. And there's this text that I have here that I printed out and it's, the, it's a full text of a four page document used by the terrorists responsible for the hijackings of the four planes on 9-11. And it was released by the FBI and, um, and, and it was translated by, uh, Imad Musa, who is a translator for a group in New York, for the New York Times, and they talk about the prayers they said while they were doing, while they were getting ready to do 9-11, right? And the, and the, 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 you know, and it's just because they believed there was a religious act for them. Right. And the last night, then they have all these numbers of what they should do about making an oath about dying and renewing their intentions, shaving excess body hair from the, uh, hair from the body, wearing cologne, shower, knowing all the aspects of the plan well, reading certain uh, chapters of the Quran before they go, remind your soul to listen and obey and that um, God will protect you, basically, and prayers during the night be persistent in asking God for protection, um, that he may make your task easier, and uh, yeah, and just, and on and on, it's like one, two, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, fifteen different prayers they were doing, purify their souls, um, feel tranquility, Right. Keep in mind if hardship happens to remain steadfast, that God will raise you to a certain level. And then um, remind yourself of supplications, both before and after, 
bless your body with verses from the Quran. Yeah, just on and on. And I only printed a little bit of it just to, just to have it to refer to while I was giving the talk because it was so part of the deal. And then of course, on the, on the, um, on the American side, right? Right after the, the, um, the attack, George Bush gave his speech that night, who was president at that time. And he said, I ask for your prayers for all those who grieve, for the children whose worlds have been shattered, for all whose sense of safety and security have been threatened, like very heartfelt, right? And then he says, I pray uh, they will be comforted by a power greater than any of us, spoken through the ages and Psalms, even though I walk through the valley of death, I fear no evil, you are with me. And so both sides had God on, on their side, right? And it's just part of the othering of people is we use what's heartfelt for us to make the other people mad and us holy really on, on each side. And there was an article in the Sun magazine that I'm going to read that points more to really what we're seeking, how to respond to difficulty, to suffering. And it's, it's uh, I'm going to read it. It's uh, people writing about buses and their relationship to buses in the Sun magazine. So it's a reader's right uh, uh, part of the magazine. And somebody, a woman wrote in, she said, in 1953, my German war bride mother and my GI father moved our young family from Brooklyn to rural Pennsylvania. During an ice storm that first winter, a Greyhound driver lost control and plowed into a pillar on a bridge opposite our driveway. My sister Beth and I had just gone to bed. We heard the crash, followed by dad shouting orders to mom. Suddenly, the blankets were yanked off us and the doors, front door slammed. We heard voices that dad ushered the passengers into our house to stay warm. Beth and I sat quietly on the top step, watching strangers fussing about in our house. The frightened faces of the children worried me, but mom started whipping up scrambled eggs and they followed their noses into the kitchen. We had no telephone, right? This is 1953, they didn't even have a home phone, right? No telephone. So dad took the driver to a nearby hotel to use the payphone. The Greyhound Company sent a rescue bus from Scranton, which was quite a ways away, delaying our guests for several hours. Mom and dad made pot after pot of coffee and hot chocolate, while little ones and old people napped in our living room under our bed linens. Afterwards, Greyhound wanted to pay dad for taking care of their passengers. Mom thought he should take the money, but dad wouldn't hear of it. Dad said that people in this country help each other in tough times. He had learned this from his mother. During the Depression, she'd had a restaurant where she'd invited homeless people in off the street to get warm. 
although she couldn't feed them all, although she couldn't feed them all, she welcomed them with cups of hot water and they helped themselves to ketchup from the tables to make tomato soup, like putting the ketchup in the hot water. After the accident, however, whenever grandma rode the, the Greyhound from New York to visit us, dad didn't have to go into town to pick her up. The driver stopped right in front of our house and walked her to the door. And so you hear something here about the kindness that happens in Dukkha. And it happened in 9-11, 9-11, the courage of the people who went in and rescued people from the World Trade Center buildings and the people who helped people get, get away from it, get out of town, because then it fell. And then, and then for days after, just the people dealing with um, the kind of... Um, breathing problems that were happening from all the dust and things like that. And you just, and, and there was some kind of collective feeling of we're in this together. And that's a feeling that is good and was, we wanna keep supporting in the bigger picture in this whole world, we're all in it together. And that's how we can respond to the dukkha, whether it's us or the others that are causing the dukkha or we're having dukkha with, it's all of us together. So, and I'll end, I have one thing from the Buddha. I'll end with, uh, uh, yeah, with the Buddha. Um, who said, your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. And once mastered, no one can help you as much, even a beloved mother or father. In other words, he's talking about being mindful of our mind and heart and the kind of freedom that's possible when we've trained ourselves to be aware. So, we have some time for any comments or questions. I'd love to hear what you say, whether you agree, don't agree, or anything good or bad, right or wrong that I've said, I'd love to hear. Please raise your hand like Clint's done and Clint will go. Uh, thank you, Eugene. Sure, wait, uh, let me just put you on, on speaker view. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Hi, Clint. Sure. First of all, I apologize for interrupting your, your talk. Um, sure. But uh, I, I do remember that among the horror of that, and you talked about it, was how people that came to come together. I remember it wasn't just only in New York, but uh, yeah. flights all over the country, uh, they had to land in the nearest airport. And people in the local towns would take these passengers in and house them and feed them and so on. And yeah, now beautiful to bring that in. That's totally accurate. And of course, I focused on on the World Trade Center, but there was there was everything was uh, was kaflui, really, because of exactly what you're saying, because planes were not flying. Yeah, right. And um, I, I mean, it's, along with the horror. There was also a sense, this is probably the first time in, in my life that I could see everybody in this country pulling together mm -hmm. and um, 
trying to help each other, just like you said, and so on. And um, there's a certain sadness about how utterly and completely divided we are right, right now, as opposed to that. And um, it, it just seems like it was so divided, I don't see it coming together again. And I, I feel very well, sad about that. But Yeah, well, that is sad. The division is sad, and it's, it's uh, tragic, actually. And we don't know what's going to happen, and we'll see. And I think it's it may be very divided, but there's also a lot of people who are not for division. There are a lot of people who are not just on one side or the other, but like, let's get past this. Let's get over this. Let's deal with life together because we're here together. And I keep hearing more and more about the non-othering people. As a woman, I wish I remembered her name, but I can't who I'm hoping to hear a talk from her soon about just that, about just the divisiveness that is part of the human psyche that then gets expressed collectively. Okay. Thanks, Clint. Sure. Jerome. Thank you, Eugene. You're I really hi. Hi, I really appreciated your talk. And when I saw that you were going to talk on 9-11, I wanted to make a point to um, be with you on this. Uh, I, I am of the, I have um, degrees in engineering, physics, and computer science. And I have studied the reports and the the report from the National Institute of Standard, the NIST report. And I have found, along with many other people, that the NIST report was totally incomplete and incorrect. And the architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth are trying to get NIST to reevaluate their, their position, and they keep refusing. And the point uh, is just wait, wait, clarify who's this National Institute of Standard. Okay. Okay. It's yeah. a yeah. They made the report to Congress, 250 pages of it, and and the science in there was totally inaccurate. Mm -hmm. it, if you're a scientist and read and go through some of the arguments that they made, you'll see, for example, when building seven fell, there there is are reports that it was a controlled demolition. And the reason we know it was a controlled demolition is how the building fell all at once after initial conditions. And this led me to believe that both of the towers were also controlled demolitions. And the smoke that was emitted from the tops of the towers in the first few seconds of the explosions was a cover-up for the fact that it was a controlled demolition. And if you look carefully at some of the films that you can no longer see in the news, there remained the central tower that was the central um, pole. It was more than a pole that 
stuck up. And then after a while, it collapsed also. This, this, these have been removed from all the, not the, all the. Uh, so wait, the, let me, just let me see if I'm clear about what you're saying. Basically, you're saying 9-11 didn't happen in the way that most of us think it happened and that something else happened, that it was somebody did it. It was a conspiracy or a conspiracy of, of blowing up the two buildings, basically. Three. So, which, three. three. Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. Well, that may be, but I don't know that. And so I'm, you're, you're offering it to people to consider. And maybe it's true, but it's not my understanding. Yeah, I, I understand yeah. that. But yeah. I think that it, there's, there's videos online um, called Zeitgeist that uh, show some of the scientific evidence for for a uh, cover-up. Okay. And um, I, I watched those in, in uh, 2008. And then I've been following all the progress against this NIST document. Okay, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you just that stop. You you put enough information into the room about that, and you know it's very clear, and so people have got it. But it's a whole nother view, another that's like a whole nother topic. Yes, it is. Um, yeah. Thank you for letting me present. Sure. It. Okay. You're welcome. Okay. Who else? Anybody else about what I said? Or your own practice with your own fear. Anna Maria? Yeah, Anna Maria, you gotta use your, your button sometime, but okay. But happy to talk to you. <laughs> Thank you, Eugene. Sure. Um yeah, it was curious to sit um in meditation today because it was um feelings of fear that arose and just kind of that wild space of really like noticing how impermanent things are and mm -hmm. how out of control they are. And it just- Wait, wait, how what they are was second thing? Like out of control? Out of control, yes. Yeah. Um, and there was a, just a moment where I thought of my mom and she just came back from Colombia and I just thought about her getting older and passing away, you know, mm -hmm. and just mm -hmm. it, like it brought tears to my eye, to, to my heart and to my eyes, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and I was just, you know, just noticing like how, how that space feels so wild. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about what to do once you get to that space where you're feeling all of that uncertainty and what to do. Well, well, how do you experience the space you're talking about? Um, I guess I feel into myself. Mm -hmm. I'm aware of the noticing, and then I'm just aware of like wildness, <laughs> like just uncontrolled space outside of me. Uh huh. Okay. So, so is it here right now, the uncontrolled space outside of you? In a, in a way it is, but it doesn't yeah. scary. 
Yeah. Okay. So it's so it's because of course if there's uncontrolled space outside of you, it's here. Yeah. Right. But there's some different place that you're experiencing it from in this moment. Mm -hmm. And so there's either more groundedness or more centeredness or more openness to it. So, so you know, then a very simple way to be curious about it is, so what if it's wild outside of you? What's here while the wildness is here too? That's helpful to me, just even noticing like what part of me is sitting now and what part of me was sitting when I was sitting. Yeah. So I'm just going to, I guess, keep watching that. Yeah, keep watching and feeling what's sitting, sensing what's sitting. It's alive what's sitting and what's aware of what's sitting is alive. Okay, yeah, keep getting closer to... Anna Maria. Thank you, Eugene. Yeah, thank you. Okay, Andrew. Hi, everybody. Thank you for the talk, Eugene. This was a very good talk. And in some sense, it, for me, it was a continuation of your talk on fear about six weeks ago. But very same, same terrain. Yeah, um, I was, fear has always been part of my life, too much of my life. And I was kind of comparing my fear 21 years ago to my fear today in, in the crisis with COVID versus 9-11. And 9-11 was easier for me because it was shorter. And it felt there was more of an opportunity to be in a communal yes. response. You didn't have yes. to wear a mask and you didn't have to isolate. Yes. And there was a, and, and even for me, I have such a fight or flight response. I'm a, I'm a coward in some ways. I, I never, I don't give myself credit for my fear. I know I'm not always a coward. But I was contemplating going to Canada, like that was gonna, you know, I was mm -hmm. gonna run away. Yeah, yeah. So you have fear, and you have uh, your mind goes to the ideas of the fear, and you're aware of it. But with COVID, you couldn't run away. Well, that, right, because that it was, was everywhere. Yeah. Um, But your point about that it was collectively supportive because we were in it together, even though it was also true of COVID, we were all in it together and have been and are still in it, right? So we couldn't still breathe, we couldn't breathe in groups like we not could 9-11. Right. We couldn't do it live. We had to do it. We've had to do it online, just like we didn't used to be. I didn't used to run a Zoom group for 30 years. Right. But things change. Yeah. Um, so I would I would I would encourage you to feel the collectivity that's here right now, even though it's on Zoom. I feel it. It helps a lot. 
Great. Because I need to be reminded. I'm happy to remind you now and again. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Tomas. Hi, Eugene. Hi, Tomas. I want to comment on the polarization. Um, my closest friend, uh, a woman, um, my, uh, until we haven't talked for a year, she voted for President Trump twice. And um, I was just beside myself. Of course, we would get together and wasn't what we'd always talk about, but seemed like often somehow we would get on that subject or, or get close to it. And um, I finally cut her, I just decided I'm not gonna call her anymore. So I've been uh, missing her and uh, I've decided I'm gonna call her again and reach out. And um, because I realized that, you know, affection of the heart really is more powerful than political views. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not trying to like, you know, yeah, pat no, no. my back, but I just wanna get your yeah. comment on, on dealing with the polarization. I, th I think what you're doing is beautiful. I think let the heart lead and th don't let the polarization stop your heart from being more unified with her, even though you disagree with her about Trump. It's just, it's just Trump. You could even, you could, you could, uh, you could kid her and just tell her now you're, you're a Trump supporter. As long as he doesn't get elected, you're good with him. And so you don't have to fight about it anymore. And you undercut the tension, which is could rise about Trump or it could rise about the Warriors and the Celtics, right? Depending on who you are, right? And so it's really about really seeing the bigger picture. We're all here together. Even Trump supporters, we're here with them and we're here with Trump. And how do we deal with that is a really important part of practice. That's a whole bigger conversation. Yeah, thank you. Okay, thank you. Heather. Thank you for the you talk. And I just wanted to say that um, the, the time that we were doing the meta, mm -hmm. I felt very small and I felt like, how can my meta be big enough to help anybody? Like I just felt very in, mm -hmm. in you know, this, the things you're bringing up um, mm -hmm. are very, big and mm -hmm. um, the problems are so uh, enormous. It just seem in, insurmountable that mm -hmm. I, I just I felt like that was I felt I kept saying to myself, don't give up. Don't good. Don't good, give good. up. That's just really give whatever is there, even beautiful. if it feels really small. Yes. Because I thought if you don't give anything, what a shame. 
Yeah, no, beautiful, because you're quoting the Dalai Lama who says, don't give up, don't give up. And he's somebody who could have given up at any time and he doesn't give up and he can't control what's going to happen, but it doesn't shut his heart down, even though he gets angry too. So one thing he says every once in a while, he said, yeah, I know I'm not a Buddha because I still get angry. And he does because shit happens and he gets angry about it. And I appreciate his being real about it because he's as enlightened as anybody I know. And, uh, and yet he gets angry. So get angry when it happens, but let the anger fuel your love and care and let it, let, let it cover the whole world. And because your, your metta is bigger than the world. It's bigger than any of this, any of the difficulties, the metta is bigger. It doesn't mean we're going to stop it with metta, but it means we can have an impact and we don't know what the impact is. And I think I said this last week, quoting Ram Das about, you know, every, every thought, every breath, every step, every action we have impacts the whole world whether it's just a little ripple or it's a big wave, it has an impact. And don't discount the impact of your heart because your heart is bigger than you are. Your heart is bigger than you know. And I, I'm very clear about that from my own experience that I've talked about and people sending me metta when I had my near-death experience and I, I'm just clear, I don't, you know, that that's part of what saved me or one of the reasons why I'm still here. And yet it wasn't like I thought that when it was happening or I felt it even, it just did it. So trust me on my experience that much, really. And then see what happens if you, because your tenderness and the pain you feel is part of your heartfelt response to the suffering of the world and the, and the magnitude of it. And keep letting your heart break open even bigger than the suffering. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Um, I don't know. It seems hard. <laughs> what, well, what if you just relax and let the heart do itself? Because you, you, you don't have to do the metta. Give the metta. Be the metta. Be, let your heart speak. You know, whether it's saying, I hate this shit, stop it, which is a kind of fierce metta, or, or just let it you know, see the suffering that see the suffering that causes suffering. See the causes and conditions that the that the violence comes out of. And it's just human beings who are suffering. Keep playing with it. Keep exploring it. It's possible to not give up. Just like you, you already knew the right words. Don't give up. Keep your heart open. Thank you.
Okay. Thank you. We're going to end now. I'll go back to gallery view. Okay, everybody. Um, just so you know, I won't be here next week. I won't be here the next two weeks. Uh, who's here? Kitty Costello is here next week. Pam Weiss is here in two weeks. I'll be back in three weeks. I'm going to teach a retreat. We'll take a moment to offer a sharing of merit. May all the kindness, may all the heartfulness that's here, may it go out in every direction, touching beings in every realm, in every world. May, may our good fortune go out in every direction. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering, free from misunderstanding, free from the causes and conditions that produce violence. May all beings be happy and realize their true nature, their Buddha nature, the nature of wisdom and compassion. May all beings be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.